Well, I'm going to go ahead and apologize right now to all those of you who, uh, you know, you root for that other Kansas team. Who is that again? K who? K who? You're a traitor. I, he came to the office the other day. He was, he's schizophrenic. I'm, he's multi-personality. He came in the office with a Wichita State, a KU, and a Kansas State thing on. I said, you're just, you're just rooting for whoever wins, okay? Whoever wins. I, I've, got a, I've got an interest debit card that I have. I've, I got it almost seven years ago when I came. It has, you know, that, that little critter, the WSU guy on there? Yeah, you know who he is. And I've had that when I got here. And so when I pull it out, I tell everybody when they look at it, I was a fan before we were winners, okay? Okay? It's kind of funny how many WSU shirts we see around today, you know what I'm saying? Right, Mike? Everybody wants to back a winner, and we're not going to back you until you win. Well, there's a possibility they could lose today, but I'm, I'm not, not hoping they do, and I hope they go on. They made it a lot further last year than anybody expected. Now they're in trouble this year because everybody expects them to go on. And um, Mike and I were talking back there earlier, it'd be great to have KU versus Wichita State to finally see who's the best in the state, right? That's what I'd say. It'd be Kansas all the way around. So, uh, you know, I wasn't born here, but I got here as quick as I could. I keep telling you guys that. But anyway, I was born in that other state, you know, south. Starts with a T. So, let's move on. Are you ready? All right. How many of you heard of the uh, California Gold Rush? Everybody here has heard that. In 1848, that began. Um, There was a guy named James Marshall who was uh, a foreman for a guy named John uh, Sutter. And John Sutter had contracted with, uh, with Marshall to build him a mill, and he was milling around in the mill, getting ready to build the mill, and he discovered a little metallic shiny piece, didn't know what it was, couldn't identify it, so he took it to to Sutter, and Marshall and Sutter decided that they would privately, secretly determine, you know, the content of that shiny, precious little metal, and to Marshall's surprise, it was gold, but to Sutter's horror, it was gold, because you see, Sutter had decided that in the, the Sacramento area, what he wanted when there was, you know, very early on in the early California days, he wanted to build uh, an empire that was mostly surrounded by farming. He wanted an agricultural empire. And he knew that the discovery of gold would bring about thousands of people in a gold frenzy. He was not excited about it, and the two decided that they would keep the secret to themselves. Well, in March of that year, just a couple of months after it was discovered, the San Francisco newspaper published that gold had been found in California. Well, it didn't really create a gold rush, but finally, in August of that same year, the New York Post then finally uh, put something in the newspaper indicating that gold had been found in California. That still did not start the gold rush. It wasn't until John... Uh, Polk, our president of the United States of America at the time, was addressing the U.S. Congress, and in his address, he identified that gold had been discovered in California, and it was that address that started the California gold rush. And tens upon thousands of people all over the world flocked to California via the sea. Tens of thousands of Americans who lived on the east sold and left everything to travel to the west coast in the pursuit of the treasure they called gold. 
They say that the population in the area was around 1,000 at the time, and within the five-year period in which the gold reach finally reached its peak, some estimate 100 to as many as 300,000 people gathered in Sacramento, California to find the treasure called gold. Many, if not most, who left and sold everything to make the pilgrimage to California to find gold did not strike it rich. Most of them found pretty much about the same amount that they had before they left their home to come to establish a new home in California. And during the five years in which it reached its peak, it is said that nearly $2 billion of gold was discovered in Sacramento during the California gold rush. $2 billion. Now, we think that's a lot of money today, but then... It was a lot more than it is today, $2 billion. And we would think that, you know, since that, that event somewhat shaped America and the America that we know today, it was a sociological and an economical and if not a structural change for us in America, we would think that the gold rush is over. But there's a thing on Discovery Channel called the gold rush. Anybody ever seen that? It's called the gold rush. I've seen it a couple of times. Uh, it's a it's a true life type of uh, episode or a series. Uh, it's in its fifth season on Discovery Channel. It is one of their highest uh, seen uh, episodes or or um, what's the word I'm looking for um, series uh, in which men between 18 and 48 watch. Now I don't know why men. But it is about several men who are looking to find gold deposits in the Klondike and in Alaska and in even Guyana. And there's something that I think most of us like about those kinds of adventurers. They sell and they leave everything. They put everything on the line in the pursuit of the promise of a treasure that may or may not be found. I mean, who of us does not want to live in a beautiful place in the United States like that to leave this concrete jungle we call Wichita? to go out into the beautiful mountainous regions of the Northwest and to live this dangerous lifestyle among, you know, wildlife that could eat us alive and, and to just risk it all for the promise of maybe finding a treasure that would make us incredibly wealthy. You see, I think that there's something within us all that even even though we're adults, has not quite died. I know we've got a lot of children here today, and I think most of us as children have gone on treasure hunts, or we have imagined that we're on a treasure hunt. And even as adults, I think there's something in us that would like to go on an adventure, on a quest to find a priceless treasure, wouldn't we? And Jesus addresses, I think, that desire to find a priceless treasure in the two parables that we're going to look at today. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Let's stand together and read verse 45, 44 through 46 together. And uh, we're going to see how Jesus then begins to describe for us two men that did exactly what they did on the gold rush that we see on Discovery Channel. Let's look at the text, beginning with verse 44, Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Treasure seeker number two. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that is ours today to stand in honor of your word, to have been able to worship you in spirit and in truth. 
And it's our heart's desire that what we have brought before you in praise and adoration was acceptable to you because it came from a heart filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, for the privilege that we have to boldly come before your throne of grace, having already received your mercy, to bestow upon you all the glory, all the majesty, and all the honor that we can as human beings. God, I pray that now as we open your word, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, help us to not only receive but understand what you're trying to speak into our lives so that that transformational work through your spirit, by your word, might have its full effect in our lives and we might leave not only encouraged but equipped and empowered to seek out the greatest treasure in this life, you. Thank you for the joy that's ours to be together as a family today. And I pray that you'd bless this time as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, if you and I were to go on a treasure hunt and we were to sell everything we have and were to, to go on a, on a quest, much like the two men that we've described and the ones that we know in the Discovery Channel, there would be several things that we would have to take into consideration. And Jesus gives us six considerations that we need to have in pursuing the greatest treasure of all. What are those six considerations? Number one, I want us to look at the definition of the treasure. It's important that we understand what we are seeking. It's important to understand what we are seeking to, to attain because if we don't know what we're trying to attain, if we have not defined the treasure that we want to, to possess, then how will we know that we found it? I mean, these people that left California knew that they were in quest of a little metal that they would find either a river or maybe just laying around because it, it was that plenteous. It was just laying around a thing called gold. They had defined their, their treasure. They knew what it looked like. They could identify it by what it looked like. They knew that once they possessed it, they had it. Why? Because it was defined, their treasure was defined as gold. And if we are on a quest, we must define what that quest is about. We must have the end in mind. We must know what the purpose of our search is. And in the text of these two men, there's a man and there's a merchant, we have for us identified what their quest is in search of. What is the ultimate end to their search. Notice he says in verse 44, in defining the man, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a man. Notice he says like a treasure that's hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up. Notice the treasure is identified as the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. What is the treasure that he's seeking? He is seeking the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's seeking. There is something that is lacking in his life. There is a, a significance that is lacking. There is, there is a satisfaction that is lacking. And because it is lacking, he is in the quest or he is in the search of fulfilling that satisfaction, of quenching that thirst. And, and the identification here, the definition of the treasure is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Notice the second guy, the merchant in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven, notice it says, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. What is the definition of the quest? What's the definition of what we're looking for? The kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven was inaugurated. It was instituted when Christ became incarnate, God in the flesh. He was born. It was it was his ministry, it was his mission, it was his message, it eventually became his death, and it was fulfilled through his resurrection. 
The kingdom of heaven is found through the person of Jesus Christ. And the quest that he's defining here is a quest to be a part of the kingdom. That means what they believed that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was basically where God would be reigning and ruling today. And so that became a present reality in the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus identified himself many times as the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He said, it is among you. It is present. And because Jesus was literally in the flesh, he was present. And he was identifying that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is presently here. And from that moment on, since his incarnation and his resurrection, the kingdom of heaven has been present. It's been present in the hearts and the lives of the men and women and boys and girls who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Once we accept Jesus as our personal savior, the son of God through his spirit comes and resides in our hearts. And we then become a part of the kingdom of heaven. We become citizens of the kingdom of God. And then through his reign and his rule in our lives, that kingdom is not fully established, but it is presently established only to be finally fulfilled at our death or when Christ returns. And so the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. But notice he identifies in the merchant that's looking for it, that, or I mean the man that was looking for it, that it was hidden. Why is it hidden? It's not visible, or nor is it tangible by these earthly definitions. It's a spiritual kingdom, as I've said, a spiritual kingdom that's not made of brick and mortar. It's not tangible in that I can feel it and I can grab hold of it. It's not made with brick and mortar. Uh, this church is not a part of the kingdom of heaven. The, the people who are part of the kingdom of heaven are the people who place their faith and trust in Christ. So who is a part of the kingdom of heaven? The church or the people who belong to the church? The people. And because we place our faith and trust in Christ, he then reigns and he rules in our lives, and we become a part of the kingdom of God, and his kingdom now begins to become a present reality for us. So the definition here is eternal life, to be a part of the family of God, to know that upon your death you will receive an inheritance, an eternity in paradise, in heaven, called the kingdom of God. That is a present reality already through your faith in Christ. So that's the definition of the kingdom of heaven. It should be the quest and the goal, and it is, of these two guys. Now notice the desire for this treasure. Notice the desire of the treasure. The desire is found in verse 44, in the second guy, uh, first guy, the man, which is said, which a man found. Notice that he found a treasure. He found it. Notice, now down, skip down to verse 45, he said, a merchant in search of the pearls. We have a man and we have a merchant. The man accidentally finds the treasure. Now, we don't know exactly why this man was in this field, but he was in this field. It didn't belong to him. We don't know if he was surveying the land in order to buy it because maybe he wanted to be a farmer. He wanted to plant some, some crop next year. We don't know if he was surveying it to see if it would be good to lease from the person who owned it. We don't know. Maybe he was just traveling through, but he was in a field that didn't belong to him. And as he's walking this field, he happens upon something that looks a little bit odd in the field. He goes over and he uncovers what's there. And to his surprise, he finds a treasure chest. Now, before our day and time, I know it's hard for us to imagine, but during the day of Jesus, we didn't have the vaults that we have today. So if you had some money and some valuables, where would you store them? Especially if you were a farmer and you lived out in the country, where would you place them? There was no such thing as a, as, as a vault or a safe in your home. 
And so in order to hide it from thieves or maybe from relatives who might sneak a couple of, you know, to, to go and have some fun, you know, on some kind of weekend excursion or whatever, the guy who possessed it then would take it out in his field somewhere, find and identify a place that would be safe, and he would bury the treasure for safekeeping. And only he knew where the treasure was. I can imagine maybe some of the children of this guy probably went out looking for the treasure from time to time, hoping that they might find it. But this guy, this man, is walking in the field, and he comes across and stumbles across this treasure in the field. Now, the guy who presently owns the field does not know that the treasure exists. So we don't know what happens to the, happened to the original owner, and uh, we don't know that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that we don't know that the person who presently owns it doesn't know and is not aware that the treasure chest is in the field, because if he had known the treasure chest was there, he would not have sold the field without possessing the treasure himself. And so this guy sort of stumbles on this treasure that the present owner doesn't know that it exists. And I think we see in this text that Jesus is trying to identify some of us who are in search of a treasure and we're sort of haphazardly making our way through life, business as usual, not really searching for the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, not really even aware that it's there. And then he comes to us and he reveals to us, hey, let me give you now the secret of a satisfying life and of self-fulfillment. Let me, let me fill that void in your life. Here it is. Some of us in this room were like that. We were business as usual. We were living our lives as we pleased. We really had no intention or no desire of, of possessing the kingdom of heaven or knowing Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, Christ, uh, God, invaded our lives and revealed to us that Jesus was a solution to the significance and to the search that we're involved in. And boom, all of a sudden, we discover this treasure and we desire to know Jesus. Notice the merchant in the second parable, we see that this merchant was in search of pearls. Now, the search here seemed to indicate that the merchant was in, intentional, he was meticulous, he was careful, and he was intense. We have a merchant who, who, who understands and he recognizes that there is such a pearl, there is such a prize, there is such a treasure that is worth everything, and he is searching for it. And in his search, no matter how many times he looks and no matter how far he goes to possess it, he can't seem to find it, but he is not going to give up. He is relentless in his search for significance and satisfaction. And he believes if I can just possess this pearl of great price, I'll have not only satisfaction, but I'll have significance in my life. I'll have it all. And he's on a quest and it's intense. And there's some of us in this room who are on a search. It was intense. And we were looking for truth. We were looking for meaning. We were looking for significance. We were looking for satisfaction. And we tried it in many, many different places and in many different ways, in possessions and power and prominence and prestige and finances and all of these worldly accolades and accomplishments and achievements. But in all of our search and all of our effort to attain it, all of that effort just left us empty. It was elusive. And we never found satisfaction. We never found significance. But we're searching for it. And then all of a sudden, bam, God invaded our lives and revealed to us Jesus as the truth, as the way, as the life, and showed us here he is. And something welled up within us, a desire to possess this treasure called Jesus. Once that desire began, we had a discovery. And in looking at that, notice that these guys who were looking at the treasure, they discovered something. <coughs> they didn't discover the treasure itself. 
they discovered the value of the treasure. The value of the treasure. Because you see, it's one thing to notice something, but it's another thing to notice the value of what we've discovered. Because if we don't think that what we've discovered is valuable and what we desire is worth everything, then we're not going to do what is necessary in order to attain it. These guys not only discovered and had a desire for it, but they discovered the value of possessing it. They saw the value of what they saw. Notice it says in the parable in verse 44, the man, the treasure hidden in a field which a man found. And what did he do? He covered it up. Why did the guy cover it up? Is that illegal? No, it wasn't illegal. It wasn't immoral. It wasn't unbiblical because the person who owned the field didn't know it was there. And maybe the guy who found it, maybe he, he thought it, it's not really the owner's anyway. Maybe some guy came from the field across the field and then buried it there. We don't know. But there's nothing. Don't read more into the parable than what's necessary and what, what's trying to convey the central idea of the text. But we see this guy as he's surveying the field, he stumbles across this treasure and he finally discovers in this treasure, he wants it because he sees the value of possessing it. And he, he buries it. And we're going to find out later when he buries it is that he's going to go back to the owner of the field and he's going to buy the field. Because he knows that if he tells the owner of the field, hey, I found a treasure in your field, do you think he's going to sell it? He might sell it after he un- uh, uncovers the treasure, right? And so he buries it. Why? Because he sees the value of what he has discovered and what he desires. You see the second guy, the merchant in verse 45, who finding one pearl, how does he describe the pearl? Of great value. Of great value. I mean, here's a guy, and he must be a pearl merchant, and he's used to seeing a lot of pearls, and he'd been in a lot of, you know, places across the world, and he's, he's sat across. I mean, when, I was a, when I was a kid in Brazil, I lived in a, in a state called Minas Gerais in South America, Brazil. And uh, Minas Gerais means general mines. And um, in Brazil, in this state that I belong to, that, that I lived in as a missionary kid, I remember Americans coming back to the United States, you know, coming from the States to Brazil to visit us. And one of the things they always want to do is buy some precious jewels. And because our state was a mining state, there was all kinds of precious metals, greens and yellows and, you know, just multicolored. And I can remember even as a kid sitting with these, these people from the U.S. and my parents taking them to this jeweler and they would sit in this table and they, they'd open up all these little things and they would just be multicolored rainbows of precious jewels just all over this table and the Americans could nitpick whichever they wanted and then they would buy them and take them back to the States. Penny on the dollar in Brazil during those days. Not anymore. But uh, I remember seeing that. And I, I can imagine this jeweler being this kind of guy. I mean, he owns a lot of pearls. He owns a lot of fine jewelry. He has a lot of precious metals and minerals that he owns. And he's got all this out. And he is looking for that one great pearl of price, one that exceeds them all. I mean, he had this and he had that and he accomplished and achieved and attained some things, but all of that was elusive. He was looking for something of great value. And when he finally finds it, he recognizes the value of his find. So much so that he sells everything to buy the one. I would say that's pretty valuable, wouldn't you? You know, I I think sometimes what we fail to recognize is the value of what Jesus is offering over the value of what the world offers us. Because the reality is, I think, that sometimes the world wants us to 
to visualize what they're offering and to see that there's more value in the tangibles and the earthly things rather than in the spiritual and the eternal things that God offers us. And the world is trying to sell us a set of values, aren't they? They're trying to influence us. Waste or spend your life on this value system, right? Because in attaining those, you'll have satisfaction and you'll have, and you'll have fulfillment. And, and the reality is, they don't bring those, do they? We're not only battling what the world offers, I think we're battling internally as well. Because as I mentioned last week, we have a carnal nature. We have a, a selfish nature. It's in us. It's also sort of trying to influence our value system. And self has a way of wanting to be first and wanting to take priority in our lives and trying to sell us on a set of values in order to gratify self. And that value system conflicts and is contradictory to the value system of God. And top that with the, the, the influence of the enemy of Satan who's constantly bombarding us from the outside to value the earthly and the temporary, not the eternal and the beneficial and the spiritual. And the enemy is constantly trying to invade and bombard our lives with all these temptations of, of, of redefining what our value structure and our values ought to be and what is valuable. And, and if we're not careful in the United States of America, we will spend our entire lives in the pursuit of things that are not genuinely valuable because they're earthly and they're temporary and they're not eternal. And so he says, these guys discovered the value of what they have found. And in this desire to possess it, notice that they, number three, number four, they made a decision to possess it. This decision is a personal decision, both for the man and for the merchant. Notice in verse 44, notice that the man buys that field. He makes a decision based upon his discovery of his worth, of its value. I want that. I desire it. And I'm going to make a decision to make it mine. Whatever it costs, whatever it's worth, I want it to be mine. I want to possess it. It's a personal decision. Notice we see the merchant in verse 46 that he too bought it. He buys it. He buys it because he sees the value in it. He buys it because he desires it. And he made a personal decision to buy it. That, I think, is indicative of what Jesus is saying in this parable, is that we, if we are to possess Jesus, it must be a personal decision. It's not a decision that mom and dad can make for us. It's not a decision that I can make for my spouse. It's not a decision that grandparents can make for their grandchildren. It's not a decision that the pastors can make for those who, 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 who attend the church. It's a personal decision. These men made a personal decision to acquire it and to possess it themselves. Nobody twisted their arms. They saw the value in it. They desired it, and they made a decision, I want it. You remember when you made that personal decision? to place your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? I mean, there was a desire. You saw the value in it. And you stepped forward and you made that personal decision to trust Christ. It's a personal decision. Fifth, we see the devotion that was necessary in order to attain what was there. If you look at the text, you'll see that the man in verse 44, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. He goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. How much did it cost him? How much? Everything. Everything to possess the treasure chest. Now, that means everything. 
Didn't mean that he got to, to keep something or to hoard something or to stash something for later on. He had to give it all in order to possess the field in order to attain the treasure. He didn't really want the field. He wanted the treasure. But in order to get the treasure, he had to buy the field. And in order to buy the field to get the treasure, it cost him everything that he had. Everything that he had. Everything that he had. Notice the merchant in verse 44. He went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. How much did it cost the merchant to attain the one pearl? Everything. All that he had. Everything. And so what Jesus is saying here is saying, I'm offering you something. I'm offering you the kingdom of heaven. And what I offer you, you desire it. You, you know the value of it. It requires a personal decision. But as you're reflecting on this personal decision, I want you to know that it's going to cost you everything that you have in order to possess it. Jesus, from early on in his ministry, did not make it easy for his disciples to follow him. He required of them to give it all up for him. He said, if you want to follow me, you must forsake everything and everyone. He said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. He constantly, continually ministered, and his message was that of everything or nothing. And yet we today have so simplified the gospel that we've narrowed it down to a simple prayer that takes maybe one minute to pray and we dunk someone in the water and declare them saved. And then I wonder how many of us have forsaken it all to follow Christ. And then the problem is those of us who are in the pulpit and those of us who are trying to teach those who want to follow Jesus, well, now you got to give it your all. No. The all comes up front. It comes in the decision, the personal decision, that when I place my faith and trust in Christ, I turn away from everything and I follow him. And now he is the Lord. Now he reigns and he rules in every part of my life. And there are no limitations, there are no boundaries to what belongs to him. For it all now belongs to him because I have given it all, I have forsaken it all in order to follow him. And now part of my job sometimes, it seems like, is trying to convince people who have forsaken it all to follow Christ to now give up a little bit so they can follow him. A little bit. Just a little bit. Because most of us shy away from those who demand our all, don't we? There's a commitment here on the part of these guys. A devotion to give their all to possess the one. The one. One pearl. One treasure. There's not multiple treasures or multiple pearls. There's only one heaven, only one Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. One way to one possession. And notice the delight of the man. It's interesting that we see in the text, he said, then in his what? In his what? In his joy. Where, where is your joy? What happened to our joy, church? I, I, I want to I be very careful here. <laughs> Sometimes I see the, the, uh, the tapes of us up here, and I wonder where our joy went. Where'd it go? I mean, if there's anyone who should have delight and joy, it's us. Because we have it all when we have Jesus. 
What happened to our joy? Well, you don't know the troubles I've been through this week. Really? Notice it said that the guy, the man gave it all up for the one treasure and he delighted to do it. Now he gave everything up. He only had one thing. Only one gave it all up for one thing. And that one thing, he did it with incredible delight and joy. He was happy to do it. And as he looked and he analyzed and evaluated what he possessed, it was greater and more advantageous to him than all the other stuff that he had had to put up with and that it cost him to attain it. If all that you ever had was Jesus, that alone should be enough to make us smile and have joy in our hearts. What happened to our joy? What happened to our delight? Where was me? My name's Eeyore. You know? Or the sky has fallen, Chicken Little. He had one thing. Gave it all up for one thing. And he had joy. Well, there's another man in Matthew chapter 19. Chapter 19, where he was a young man, and uh, he had acquired uh, what the world had, had, had told him he should value. He had possession, he had prominence, he had power, he had finances, he had it all. And yet the void that was in his heart wasn't satisfied. He didn't find the significance in possessing all of these things. And he sought Jesus out. This is not a parable. This is a true story in which he sought Jesus out in Matthew chapter 19. And he came to Jesus and he said, you know, what must I do to be saved? Call Jesus good. Jesus said, why do you call me good? For there's only one who is good. He said, go and keep the commandments. And he said, I've kept all the commandments. He said, really? The young man boldly declared, yes, I have. And he said, well, then go. Notice it says, Jesus told him, if you would be perfect, he says, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, for you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Where's this treasure? In heaven. This young man thought his treasures were on the earth, in earthly possessions, and he was void. There was an emptiness here, you know? It's empty. And he said, let me help you fill the void. The treasure that you're seeking is a heavenly treasure. And then come and follow me. Sell everything. Notice we said, give it all up and follow me. What have we been talking about? All for Jesus. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Why couldn't he follow Christ? Look at all I've accomplished and achieved. You want me to give this all to you, Jesus? Eh-eh, ain't going to do that. What did Jesus say? Then you can't follow me. It's kind of hard, isn't it? Does that sound seeker-sensitive to you? Is Jesus a seeker pastor? He's trying to make it easy and convenient for people to come and follow Jesus? Give it all up and follow me. So I can't do that. Then you can't follow me. The guy went away disappointed. And Jesus turns to his disciples and said, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they flip out. And notice what Peter says in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. Peter says, hey, we've, we've left everything. We've left it all. 
Remember when they, he asked them to follow him? They left their nets, their boats, their business, their income, their family, and everything, and they followed Christ. He says, see, we have left everything we followed you. What then will we have? Now, let me stop here. Jesus is not only saying it's going to cost us everything in order to follow him in this parable, but he's saying, let me tell you, he's saying to us that if we're willing to forsake it all and follow him, there's incredible blessings and benefits for us who do that. He's not, he's not, he's saying, if you'll give it all up, there, there's an inheritance, there's a reward, there's a promise, and there's a blessing. And Peter brings that up. Hey, we left everything to follow you. Then what's in it for us? We left it all. What's in it for us? Anybody here not want to know what's in it for you? Because you see, there's a cost. It's all or nothing. But for those of us who are willing to give our all, to die so that he might live, notice he says to Peter, he says to them in verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. You're going to reign and rule with me. Wow. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 29, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, our children, our lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the f- last shall be first. I'm going to try to sing. I sing on Wednesday night. I'm sorry. For those of you who are there on Wednesday night, let's try it again. It reminded me of a song. We sang a hymn this morning. I know it's an old school thing, but we need sometimes foundations that are generational foundations that anchor our faith in really troubled times that we live in. We need to balance the old and the new. There's a beautiful hymn that says exactly what Jesus is saying here. I surrender all. How many of you know that hymn? How many of you can sing it by memory? We're going to try it out. I've got a cheater here, though. The leader always needs to have a cheater. All to Jesus I surrender all. To him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. Got a cheat up there, too, huh? I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Verse 2, all to Jesus I surrender, humbly at His feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken tell. May Jesus take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Number three, 
All to Jesus I surrender, make me Savior holy thine. May thy Holy Spirit know that thou art mine. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender. Oh, keep the chorus up there, would you? Keep the chorus up there. Here's the invitation today. Really simple. I'm going to ask our choir and workers to come. And while they come, the invitation is all. That's right. It's all or nothing. All or nothing. Jesus didn't say you could stash, store, stockpile a little bit for later on, a little bit of the flesh, a little bit of the world. No, he says all or nothing. Most of us, if not every one of us, when we made that decision, I hope that someone, as they showed you the value of the kingdom of heaven and possessing Christ as your Savior, showed you and taught you that it's all or nothing. But maybe somewhere along the way, in your journey, in your pilgrimage of following Jesus, you went back and said, well, I need a little of this, and I need a little bit of that, and I need a little bit of this, and we're, we're going back and reclaiming some things that earlier we gave up to follow him. And now, honestly, we've come to the place and point of our lives that we've not surrendered our all. Maybe there's some of us who've never made the right decision to follow Christ. And that could be one of the main reasons why we're struggling in our faith, because we've not truly surrendered all. We, we came with this baggage, and we said, you know, Lord, I'll follow you, but I'm going to keep all my stuff. And that's not really how it works. And though you mouth some words, there was never a transformation that took place because it wasn't all or nothing. For I'm convinced there are many who are going to call him Lord, Lord, on judgment day and he's going to say depart from me i never knew you but what about this and what about that and what about this and he's going to say i never knew you because i'm convinced there are some who proclaim him who don't know him and i hope you're not one of those and maybe there's some of us in here who for the first time have recognized the value of what jesus is offering and even though he's asking for everything Possessing him gives us everything. And I'm willing today to place my faith and trust in him and turn my life over to him and make him Savior and Lord of my life. I'm going to ask our pastors to come. I want us to sing this chorus with everyone remain seated. If your desire is to surrender your all before we sing this invitation hymn, I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing this chorus. Lisa, can you play this for me? <laughs> 